0: Part two of Chapter 17 of the story, of The Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field, Chapter 17, Recovery of the Lost Cable, Part Two. At the same time, it was decided that the three other ships should leave their present cruising ground and try a new spot as an old fisherman who has cast his line in one place so often as to scare the fish away sometimes has better luck in other waters so they proposed to go east a hundred miles to a place where the ocean was not quite so deep dean in his diary calls it the sixteen hundred fathom patch but they found it nineteen hundred fathoms or about two miles so the next morning the great east and the medway and the albany pulled up stakes that is they took on their boys and bore away to the east In a few hours they reached the appointed rendezvous, and had set their buoys. The last day of August had come, and all seemed favorable for a final attempt. It was a clear day with no wind. The sea had gone down, so that at noon it was a dead calm, as the three ships took their position in line, about two miles apart, ready to open their broadsides at once. The grapnel went over for the thirtieth time. Kind heaven favored its search, and at ten minutes before midnight it had filed the cable, and fastened its teeth never to let go. Feeling something at the end of the rope, they began to haul in, but slowly at first, as an expert angler decoys a big fish by pulling gently on the line. Watching the dynamometer, they saw with delight the strain increase with every hundred fathoms. Up it went to eight, nine, ten tons. They had caught it, and no mistake. In about five hours they had drawn it up to within a thousand fathoms of the top of the water, where it hung suspended from the ship. But now came the critical point, for as it approached the surface, the danger of breaking increased every moment. It required delicate handling. To make sure this time, the Great Eastern buoyed the cable, and moved off two or three miles to take a fresh gripe in a new place, and having got a double hold, the medway, which was two miles further to the west, was ordered to grapple for it also, and having caught it, to heave up with all force, till she should bring it on the board, or break it. This was done, and the old cable brought up within three hundred fathoms, and there broken. This at once lightened the strain, and gave them an end to pull upon whereupon the great eastern having a lighter weight on the rope drew up again but still gently watching the strain lest the cable should break these operations were very slow and lasted many weary hours it was a little before midnight on friday night that the cable was caught and it was after midnight sunday morning that it was brought on board how long that day seemed night turned to morning and morning to noon and noon to night again and still the work was not done still the great ship hung over the spot where its treasure was suspended in the deep the sun went down, and the moon looked forth from driving clouds upon a scene such as the ocean never saw before. At a distance could be discerned the black hulls of the attendant ships, the Albany and the Medway. But why were they thus silent and motionless in the midst of the sea? Some mysterious errand brought them here, and as their boats approached with measured sweep at this midnight hour it seemed as if they came with muffled oars to an ocean burial. It was still calm, but the sea began to moan with unrest, as if troubled it in its sleep, as midnight drew on the interest gathered about the bows of the great eastern the bulwarks were crowded with anxious watchers peering into the darkness below still not a word was spoken not a voice was heard save that of captain anderson or mr halpin or mr canning giving orders as it approached the surface two men who were tried hands were lashed with ropes and lowered over the bows to make fast to the cable where it should appear this was a perilous service and the boats were there to pick up the brave fellows if they should drop it into the water as soon as it showed itself they dived upon it and seizing it with their hands fastened it with large hempen stoppers which were quickly attached to five-inch ropes it was then found that the bite was so firmly caught in the springs of the grapnel that one of the brave hands who put on the stoppers was set lower down to the grapnel and with hammer and fallen spike the rope was ultimately freed from the tenacious gripe of the flukes The signal being given to haul up the western end of the bight was cut with a saw, and grandly and majestically the cable rose up the frowning bows of the great eastern, slowly passing round the sheave at the bow, and then over the wheels onto the fore part of the deck. The greatest possible care had to be taken by Mr. Canning and his assistants to secure the cable by putting on stoppers, and to watch the progress of the grapnel rope and shackles round the drum before it received the cable itself. When once it was made fast, all took a long breath. The cable was uncovered. They had the sea serpent at last. There the monster lay, its neck firmly in their gripe, and its black head lying on the deck. But even then there was no cheering, as when they caught it two weeks before. Men are sometimes stunned by a sudden success, and hardly know if it be not all a dream. So now they looked at the cable with eager eyes, but without a word, and some crept toward it to take it in their hands, to be sure that they were not deceived. Yes, it was the same that they had paid out into the sea thirteen months before but their anxiety was not over now that they had regained the lost cable of eighteen sixty five was it good for anything it had been lying more than a year at the bottom of the deep what if it should prove to have been broken somewhere in the eleven hundred miles between the ship and ireland what if some sharp rock had worn it away or some marine insect had eaten into its heart if there were but a pin's point anywhere in its covering of flesh the vital current might escape through it into the sea fears like these restrained their exultation it was yet too soon to proclaim their victory So, as the cable was passed along the deck to the testing room, where the chief electrician was to operate upon it, to see whether it was alive or dead, it was followed by an anxious group who stood around him as he sat down at the instrument, watching his countenance as friends watch the face of a physician, where he feels the pulse of a patient to see if the heart is still beating. The scene is thus described by Mr. Robert Dudley, the artist of the expedition, whose spirited sketches in the London Illustrated News have made known to the many world many incidents of this memorable voyage. "'I made my way with others, in accordance with an invitation from Willoughby Smith to the electrician's room. Here, after another hour's preparation, during which time the cable had been carefully passed round the drums of the picking-up machinery, and a sufficient length drawn in on board, the severed end was received, and now, in their mysterious darkened haunt, the wizards are ready to work their spells upon the tamed lightning. Not unholy spells are these, or secret, for though the wizard's den is but of limited dimensions, they had not been averse to the presence of a few visitors.' Mr Gooch is looking on, Professor Thompson, be sure is here, a worthy wizard of the North. Cyrus Field could no more be absent than the cable itself, I think. Two canning, how at work, as he is forward in the ship, must have dropped in just for a moment. Clifford Laws, Captain Hamilton? "'Dean Dudley, all have in their several ways a great interest in every movement of Willoughby Smith and his brother and able assistant Oliver, and when the core of the cable is stripped and the heart itself, the conducting wire, fixed in the instrument, and these two electricians bend over the galvanometer, impatient watching for some message from that far-off land of home to which the great news has just been signalled, then the accustomed stillness of the test-room is deepened, the ticking of the chronometer becomes monotonous, nearly a quarter of an hour has passed, and still no sign.' Suddenly Willoughby Smith's hat is off, and the British hurrahs burst from his lips, echoed by all on board with a volley of cheers, evidently none the worse for having been bottled up during the last three hours. Along the deck outside, over the ship, throughout the ship, the pent up enthusiasm overflowed, and even before the test room was cleared, the roaring bravos of our guns drowned the huzzas of the crew, and the whiz of rockets was heard rushing high into the clear morning sky to greet our consort ships with the glad intelligence while this scene is going on on board ship we may turn to the other end of the line it may be well supposed that the result of this attempt was watched with deep interest at valentia how they looked for the first signal from the deep and how the tidings came is thus told in the london spectator night and day for a whole year an electrician has always been on duty watching the tiny ray of light through which signals are given and twice every day the whole length of wire one thousand two hundred and forty miles has been tested for conductivity and insulation the object of observing the ray of light was of course not any expectation of a message but simply to keep an accurate record of the condition of the wire sometimes indeed wild incoherent messages from the deep did come but these were merely the results of magnetic storms and earth currents which deflected the galvanometer rapidly and spelt the most extraordinary words and sometimes even sentences of nonsense suddenly last sunday morning at a quarter to six o'clock while the light was being watched by mr may footnote B this is an error mr crocker an operator in the telegraph house of valentia was the fortunate one on watch at that hour on whose eye the first ray fell as a spark of life from the dead End footnote. he observed a peculiar indication about it which showed at once to his experienced eye that a message was at hand in a few minutes afterward the unsteady flickering was changed to coherency if we may use such a term and at once the cable began to speak to transmit that is at regular intervals the appointed signals which indicated human purpose and method at the other end instead of the hurried signs broken speech and inarticulate cries of the illiterate Atlantic. After the long interval in which it had brought us nothing but the moody and often delirious mutterings of the sea, stammering over its alphabet in vain, the words canning to glass must have seemed like the first rational word uttered by a high-fevered patient when the ravings have ceased and his consciousness returns. The telegraphic fleet remained together but a few hours after this recovery of the last cable. The battle was gained, and the three ships were no longer needed. The Albany therefore parted company to pick up the buoys, and at once sailed for England while the Great Eastern, attended by the faithful Medway, turned to the west. It was about nine o'clock that the ships began to pay out the cable. Up to that time it had continued to calm, but the morning was raw and chill, and the sea began to rise as if in anger at those who had torn it from its prey. Captain Anderson looked anxiously at the signs of the coming storm. It seemed as if heaven had kept back the winds during the critical day and night when they were lifting the cable. But now the tempest was upon them, and for thirty-six hours it swept the ocean. All trembled lest they should not be able to hold on, but little incidents sometimes turn the current of one's thoughts, and give a feeling of peace even in the midst of anxiety. Says Mr. Field, In the very height and fury of the gale, as I sat in the electrician's room, a flash of light came up from the deep, which, having crossed to Ireland, came back to me in mid-ocean, telling that those so dear to me, whom I had left on the banks of the Hudson, were well, and following us with their wishes and their prayers. This was like a whisper of God from the sea, bidding me keep heart and hope, The Great Eastern bore herself proudly through the storm, as if she knew that the vital cord which was to join two hemispheres hung at her stern, and so on Saturday the 7th of September we brought our second cable safely to the shore. The scene at heart's content when the fleet appeared the second time was one that beggars description. Its arrival was not unexpected, for the success on Sunday morning that had been telegraphed to Ireland was at once flashed across the Atlantic, and the people were watching for its coming. As the ships came up the harbor, it was covered with boats, and all were wild with excitement, and when the big shore-end was got out of the medway and dragged to land, the sailors hugged it and almost kissed it in their extravagance of joy, and no sooner was it safely landed than they seized Mr. Field, Mr. Canning, and Mr. Clifford in their arms, and raised them over their heads, while the crowd cheered with tumultuous enthusiasm. The voyage of the great eastern was ended. Twice had she been victorious over the sea. Twice had she laid the spoils of victory on the shores of the new world and her mission was accomplished all on board who had been detained weeks beyond the expected time were impatient to return and accordingly she prepared to sail the very next day on her homeward voyage the medway which had on board the cable for the gulf of st lawrence remained two or three weeks longer and with the terrible whose gallant officers had volunteered for the service successfully accomplished that work but the great eastern was bound for england and mr field had now departed from his friends on board it was a trying moment Rejoined as he was at the successful termination of the voyage, yet when he came to leave the ship, where he had spent so many anxious days and weeks both this year and the years before, and apart from men to whom he was bound by the strong ties that unite those embarked in a common enterprise, brave companions in arms, he could not repress a feeling of sadness. It was with deep emotion that Captain Anderson took him by the hand, as he said, The time has come that we must part. As he went over the side of the ship, the commander cried, GIVE HIM THREE CHEERS, AND NOW THREE MORE FOR HIS FAMILY. The ringing hurrahs of that gallant crew were the last sounds he heard as he sunk back in the boat that took him to the medway, while the wheels of the Great Eastern began to move, and the noble ship with her noble company bore away to England. Our story is told. We have followed the history of the Atlantic Telegraph from the beginning to the end, from the hour that the idea first occurred to its projector, turning over the globe in his library, till the cable was stretched from continent to continent. Between these two points of time many years have passed and many struggles intervene. Never did an enterprise pass through more vicissitudes, never was courage tried by more reverses and disappointments, the constant repetition of which gives to this narrative an almost painful interest. Yet that background of disaster only sets in brighter relief the spirit that bore up under all, the faith that never despaired, and the patience that was never weary. It was a pathetic as well as heroic story which Mr. Field had to tell when it was all over. He said, it has been a long hard struggle nearly thirteen years of anxious watching and ceaseless toil often my heart has been ready to sink many times when wandering in the forests of newfoundland in the pelting rain or on the deck of ships on dark stormy nights alone far from home i have almost accused myself of madness and folly to sacrifice the peace of my family and all the hopes of life for what might prove after all but a dream i have seen my companions one after another falling by my side and feared that i too might not live to see the end and yet one hope has led me on, and I have prayed that I might not taste of death till this work was accomplished. That prayer is answered, and now beyond all acknowledgments to men is the feeling of gratitude to Almighty God. Footnote C. Speech at the Chamber of Commerce Dinner, November fifteenth, 1866. End footnote. Long and hard indeed had been the way, but in the end what a triumph was gained, an achievement that was one of the most marvelous in all history, as a proof of man's dominion over the forces of nature. When it was first proposed to span the Atlantic, it seemed but a beautiful dream, fascinating indeed to the imagination, but beyond all human power, and men listened to the picture of what might be with delighted amazement and wondering incredulity. In an oration at the opening of the Dudley Observatory at Albany in 1857, Edward Everett spoke thus of the projected Atlantic telegraph, I hold in my hand a portion of the identical electrical cable given me by my friend Mr. Peabody, which is now in progress of manufacture to connect America with Europe. Does it seem all but incredible to you that intelligence should travel for two thousand miles along those slender copper wires, far down in the all-but-fathomless Atlantic, never before penetrated by aught pertaining to humanity, save when some foundering vessel has plunged with her hapless company to the eternal silence and darkness of the abyss? Does it seem, I say, all but a miracle of art, that the thoughts of living men, the thoughts that we think up here on the earth's surface in the cheerful light of day about the markets and the exchanges and the seasons and the elections and the treaties and the wars and all the fond nothings of daily life should clothe themselves with elemental sparks and shoot with fiery speed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye from hemisphere to hemisphere far down among the uncouth monsters that wallow in the nether seas along the wrecked paved floor through the oozy dungeons of the rayless steep that the latest intelligence of the crops, whose dancing tassels will in a few months be coquetting with the west wind on those boundless prairies, should go flashing along the slimy decks of old sunken galleons, which have been rotting for ages, that messages of friendship and love from warm living bosom should burn over the cold green bones of men and women whose hearts, once as warm as ours, burst as the eternal gulfs closed and roared over them centuries ago. But a few years passed, and the vision became a reality the heart of the world beat under the sea end of chapter 17 recorded by Alexey tlander www.bookbanter.net